Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but you can call me Mike. Today I'll be talking with Chaz Smith, arguably the bad boy of surf journalism. Chaz was born in San Jose, California, but grew up in Coos Bay, Oregon. In an interview, he once quipped that he had, quote, grown up in a depressed, cloudy logging town on the coast, but the logging industry had moved at Falad and it was only depressed. He learned to surf at, the be- at these beaches in those frigid waters and not particularly noteworthy waves, longing for California the whole time. After getting an undergraduate degree in intercultural studies and a master's in linguistics, he studied in Egypt and at Oxford. He started his career as a journalist, as a foreign correspondent, writing for publications including Vice, Paper, and Black Book about Yemen, Lebanon, Syria, Somalia, Azerbaijan, and Colombia. And he was briefly a correspondent for Al Gore's current TV. When Hezbollah kidnapped him during Israel's invasion of Lebanon in 2006, he decided to transition to surf journalism. He wrote for the mainstream surfing magazine and the Brash Stab before co-founding the notorious website Beach Grit in 2014. He's also published with the more highbrow The Surfer's Journal, as well as in mainstream publications such as Esquire and Playboy. His first book, Welcome to Paradise, Now Go to Hell, came out in 2013. It was a finalist for the Penn Center USA Award for Nonfiction. This was an extremely brave expose of the North Shore of Oahu, the most important seven miles of surfing beaches in the world. In the book, he details the drugs, corruption, and brutal violence of one of the most stunningly beautiful places on earth. He also took tremendous risks to his career and his personal safety by naming names in a community that is as close to meddlesome outsiders as a Sicilian mafia town, complete with a Polynesian version of Omerta, the code of silence. I'm actually from Oahu and a second generation surfer, and I've spent a fair amount of time on the North Shore. And I'll just say that I cannot confirm or deny what's in that book. But I can say that I got more than a few raised eyebrows when I mentioned to my surfing friends that I'd be interviewing the Chaz Smith. More recently, as in just a few weeks ago, he released Reports from Hell, an account of his time in Yemen and elsewhere in the Middle East that engages both the origins of Al-Qaeda and the quality of surf on the southern coast of the Arabian Peninsula. Today, we'll be talking about his 2018 book, Cocaine Plus Surfing, A Sordid History of the Greatest of Surfing's Greatest Love Affair. This book is difficult to classify. It definitely has some history in it, but it is not a scholarly archival project. Indeed, it reads more like a Hunter S. Thompson investigation of the ways in which cocaine and surfing have been intertwined over some four or five decades or perhaps many of thousands, many thousands of years longer if you buy his premise about ancient Peruvian fishermen happily chewing coca as they surfed their boats to shore coming in from the Pacific Ocean. The main focus of his book is on the prevalence of coke in the surf industry. Now, this is gonzo journalism, and Chaz Smith puts himself into the narrative. 
And he does it in a way that I think would have made Hunter S. Thompson proud. The pages scream truth to power and the chapters drip with self-deprecating humor that can transcend into self-loathing. He condemns the surf industry. He mocks so much of the surfing life. And he tells us again and again that he hates being a surfing journalist. At one point, he ponders why he's still writing about surfing when he writes, I suppose I, ha- I was supposed to have waved goodbye to the shallow end of the swimming pool years ago. I was supposed to be a Pulitzer Prize winning war reporter by now, spilling valuable words on the plight of Syrian refugees while dodging bullets. Or maybe in the White House briefing room being shouted down by the press secretary for speaking truth to power. Or front row at the Fendi show in Paris across from Anna Wintour. Anywhere but here, but there he is, bopping about Southern California's heart of the surf in surfing industry, driving from surf industry event to surf industry event, surrounded by an increasingly desperate surf, in, increasingly desperate surf industry figures, grinding their jaws and trying to get to, into the bathroom to snort a few lines. All the while, he sardonically observes the surfing industry's free fall as he gulps down yet another vodka cocktail. Doing his best to find meaning in perhaps the shallowest shallowest subculture we could imagine, he is a detached and disgusted observer of the surf industry's apocalypse, who delivers his dispatches in insightful and oftentimes hilarious prose. Even if you don't know which side of the surfboard to wax up, you'll find it hard not to be drawn into Chaz Smith's history of surfing. Chaz Smith, welcome to New Books in History. Thank you so much for having me. I literally could not be more pleased than to be right here, right now. Right on. So now we normally start the show by asking the guests to tell us a little bit about themselves and uh, how they became to be the authors they are. I said a few words about your bio in the introduction, but tell us a little bit more about yourself. How, how did you become a surf journalist? I mean, it was just such a pure accident, along with, I think, becoming a writer in any way, shape or form. It all just sort of came out from wanting to travel more uh, and then figuring out, oh, in order to pay for travel or facilitate travel, you know, we got to write. Or I mean, that was always my thing. We got to write, A, we can sell these stories. B, uh, it gives us a reason to go. Uh, it was me, especially those. That, that's how I became a historian. Yeah. <laughs> so just an excuse to go. Yeah. Uh, but then I think as I started writing a bit more, just falling in love with, I think I fell in love more with the idea of writing and specifically with writers. Uh, I, I think I'm, was especially an awful writer. I think, you know, whatever. Oh my goodness. I just had to, yeah, my first book was uh, Welcome to Paradise, Now Go to Hell, which I just had to read the audio version of it. And reading work that's seven years old uh, and not being able to edit in real time was absolute torture. Agonizing, so huh? Yeah. I don't, I don't know that I'm a even halfway decent author now, but, it, but it was the idea of writers. It was like the, I don't know, the air of like, of Camus and of Hemingway and of, you know, Fitzgerald and of these guys. I just thought, well, being a writer is the best thing ever. I want to be that. Well, so, okay. Camus, Hemingway, like who were your writing influences, literary influences, journalistic influences? The, so the first writer I think that I ever truly fell in love with was Camus. I mean, and I don't, again, I loved what he wrote but I also, and how he wrote, but I also loved who he was uh, and how he, you know, the figure he cut, like the flipped collar and the cigarette and the tuberculosis and all of it. Um, and then 
But as I started writing myself, it was, it was just new journalism that just grabbed me by the throat and still hasn't let go. I mean, it's basically, you know, the, the only stuff I really read still, like from you know, Joan Didion to uh, uh, Hunter Thompson, of course, Tom Wolfe, um, Norman Mailer, just any of the kind of, yeah, late 60s through late 70s, I suppose, when journalism became story. Uh, that's what I loved and still yeah, love. Yeah. And, and with that, uh, that trend, you put yourself into the story and the sort of the gonzo journalism aspect. Which I just don't, it's funny because I think at, at early, early days, it was probably uh, some narcissism, but I think <laughs> now it is like, and it always read really narcissistic, but it's, I just don't know. How, like, I don't feel comfortable enough speaking for other people. Uh, but I, you know, sticking myself dead center, at least there's a reference point that the author that I feel comfortable, you know, being that asshole and then letting the reader decide, okay, this is the world's like, I know this person and this is the world as he's observing it. Mm-hmm. So, um, what did you want to accomplish with this book? Um, uh, were you really trying to write a history of cocaine and surfing? I mean, to be honest with you, when I got done with the book, I realized it was not the book that I thought I was starting to read when I first read it. Um, cause the book's about so much more. Um, and as we move through this, you know, this crazy thrill ride around Southern California, um, the book's a, a lot about you and a lot about your relationship to the surf industry. And it's, it's also got this, um, <laughs> sort of tug and cheek riff on the, uh, the hero's journey mythos and, uh, and so forth. So what, I mean, what, what is, did you really start off trying to write like a, a real history of cocaine and surfing or did you start off trying to write something else or did it become something else as you went on? Like what, what, no, what, is, what is this book? What is this crazy book? It's a giant mess. Uh, after, after my first book came out, I thought, okay, I'm done. Which was a surf book about life on the North shore. Um, I thought, okay, I've written a surf book. Now I'm on to bigger and better. And so I pitched a few things to my agent and just nothing really stuck. Uh, and he was like, you know, every idea I had, I thought they were all genius, but you know, they were all outside of surf. They were all, you know, whatever. I was going to climb Mount Everest to show that it wasn't that hard to climb Mount Everest was one of the pitches and a bunch of just random stuff that I thought was pure genius at the time. Uh, and nothing stuck. And so finally I kicked, I don't know what made me think about it. I just wrote cocaine and surfing and sent it to my, it's a history of Coke and surfing sent it to the agent, the agent sold it. And then once it got sold, I was like, Oh no, I actually have to write this thing now. I just thought of it as a mostly just a sentence. I mean, the sentence in my mind was cocaine plus surfing, a love story. Uh, And so then I thought, okay, that's okay. Like really getting down to the history, uh, you know, and, and how both drugs in general, but cocaine specifically influenced so much of the early surf industry, you know, not only from where surfers went, but how they got there to the funding of the early surf brands did. And so I thought it was going to be the story, you know, that I would tease out the cocaine part and, and just tell that history. And lo and behold, as I begun, began writing it, cocaine is the most boring drug ever. Uh, <laughs> like, I, I don't like the idea of psychedelics, maybe like I'd never feel like a hippie and don't, you know, whatever. But I, I suppose people do interesting things when they're taking psychedelics or, and or they do interesting things even when they're taking meth right i mean like i've had friends who 
got totally whacked out on meth and, you know, tried to put plate glass windows through uh, buzz saws because they were trying to make a work of art, but you're doing something. I think cocaine inevitably ends up just sitting in a bathroom chatting. Um, Solving the world's problems and uh, precisely. And so realizing business ideas. Totally. And this, this kind of boring cycle of cocaine, that cocaine has this really boring cycle. Uh, then I realized, you know, dang it, this is, you know, I just, there's not enough there. I mean, every cocaine story more or less is the same. And there's the good smuggling, cocaine smuggling stories in surfing. Uh, and, you know, I still hear more and more that I think, oh, dang it, I should have, you know, written that story in there, right? There's always a good cocaine smuggling story. Um, but there's no really good cocaine. It's not, it's just not that interesting. Cocaine is a lot sexier on the surface, which I suppose is the whole point with it, right? It's this glamorous, sexy looking drug that really is just an more or less empty soul rotting drug. Mm -hmm. And, and so, yeah, so as I was writing, realizing there's just not enough material here or that's not what I thought was interesting is not that interesting anymore. And so then uh, I don't know, but the, the surf industry is still endlessly fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> you seem to be fascinated by the surf industry. You seem to hate the surf industry. I think a lot of the listeners of this podcast who are academics um, may not even have heard the term surf industry before. Um, what is the surf industry? Is it really, is it really about surfing? Um, or is it about the fashion industry? Because one of the things I noticed in the book is there's, there's no discussion of board shaping or selling any of the hardware. It's about the clothes. So what, 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 when you say surf industry, what do you mean? And what, and what, it, what is it? So I, I suppose it's changed over the, over the you know, decade plus I've been writing at surf. It used to only be the fashion, right? Like it was Quicksilver and Billabong and Volcom that got their, you know, I, I think Volcom sold for $750 million dollars both Billabong and Quicksilver had near $2 billion valuations at some point uh, in, their, in their run. And, you know, money was just churning through surf fashion uh, for a long time, or a longish time, I suppose. And coming in from the outside and thinking, wow, like, yeah, the, you know, the actual board shaping and all that, that's all fine and good. Uh, but it's this, this spike where everything was, you know, People were getting by and then all of a sudden people are getting rich from, from selling the idea of surfing. Uh, so that I think really captivated me is, is what is this now? So I think it was one thing 10 years ago. It was another thing when I was riding cocaine and surfing, it was like really in its sort of downward slide. Now it's absolutely dead, right? I mean, there's the brands are finished for all intents and purposes and the only things making money are the hard goods, are surfboards, which I realized is the absolute true apocalypse. When people are buying uh, surfboards, the world is over, officially. What do you mean? Now the line, like when people were buying surf clothes, pretending to be surfers, fantastic. They're all on land pretending to be surfers. Now in COVID, everybody's buying boards and actually paddling out because it's something they can do socially distance. It's a healthy lifestyle. So the lineups are chock full now. I mean, do you notice your lineups fuller? Oh, oh no, no. This is, this year is the most crowded we've ever seen Santa Cruz. I was on Oahu in February and it was shoulder to shoulder uh, surfers from backdoor to Rocky point, um, probably all the way to Camuland. I mean, it was packed. Which is so, crazy, and I'm I'm so happy so for the board so shapers. How, how is that? The, how is that the surfing apocalypse? If if 
more people are surfing than ever before. Because surfing is the only thing. I mean, the, the best, the only part about surfing is trying to be more alone, right? I mean, I don't, I suppose I grew up uh, surfing in the Oregon coast. And so never, could never figure out a crowd, could never figure out how to move through a crowd. Like when you're sitting and watching Pipeline or even, you know, Steamer uh, or the lane, I'm sorry, I'll call it the right thing. Uh, you, you watch. <laughs> Chaz Smith canceled yeah exactly. you lost your west side card i deserve to get canceled for that one uh but watching those people watching how they navigate a crowd there's people who are really good at that right i mean the pipe specialists the, the people who surf pipe best are great at that the people who surf you know trestles are great at that i was never good at navigating a crowd and so as the lineup even out you know i'm surf north county san diego as these lineups get more crowded i just sit there thinking okay no waves for, for me, right? Where before, when everybody's just wearing surf clothes, fantastic. Everybody's just on land pretending, not in the water pretending, which in the water pretending, aside from the board shapers, who I hope are all getting rich, is a disaster. Well, I know a lot of board shapers and I don't know any of them who are getting rich right now, especially I mean, with this phase of globalization and the advent of the pop-out, which is um, for non-surfing listeners, boards manufactured in, in China and Taiwan. I mean, and then Costco the, um, can come. The Costco, Costco can't board. keep Wavestorm in stock. Yeah. The, uh, for, again, for the uninitiated, you can go into Costco and buy uh, a serviceable beginner's board uh, for $95. And they're all made in China. And they're just, they're, they are. This, <laughs> Donald Trump talks about the Chinese virus. This is the real Chinese virus. Wavestorm the is the plague truly. of these boards. Um, yeah. And then the, the, darkest secret is they're they're actually super fun for people who can surf they're they're the, the most fun boards to goof around on i mean they're the funnest boards for people who can surf and, and it's a bad day like yeah. nobody i feel nobody has done better a better foamy than the wavestorm yeah yeah but so so i don't know let me circle back around to that question what what is the surf industry then the, to me the i mean the surf industry is in my childhood fantasy uh, growing up again in Oregon, reading the surf magazines, you know, trying to watch hot summer nights. Do you remember hot summer nights on ESPN? No, I was not an ESPN guy. Yeah. I mean, it would, it would like, I wasn't either as a kid, but it would come on, I think it was ESPN or whatever, but they would have like 30 minutes of surf once a week in the summer. And it was, or surf, surf lifestyle. I think sometimes it was boogie boarding. Sometimes it was whatever, but I would just spoon it all down. Right. Like to me, uh, the idea of surfing was Camelot. And so this industry around it to me, you know, I, I suppose it'd be the same as wanting to be an actor and then realizing, oh, there's an actual film industry. You know, there's studios and there's, it's not just the actors, right? It's not just the surfers. There's people who exist, who make their living, who perpetuate this idea. And so as a kid, the surf industry was the, or the idea of a surf industry was a f absolute fantasy that there is this this dream this dream of surfing has i don't know has grown an entire world it's like a disneyland right because surfing was always more than just surfing to me surfing is more than just uh you know paddling into a wave and standing up it, it was my identity it's how i it's how i you know, felt when I woke up in the morning, I felt like a surfer. I wanted to be a surfer. I loved being a surfer and the surf industry again, as a, as a naive youth 
was the thing that made that all possible. So I was just as interested in that as I was in surf stuff or surfing. But, but the, you see this, this industry, this business as reinforcing that identity in you. Sure. But um, I mean, the, the, the whole, for me, the whole concept of the term surf industry is so hilariously ironic because Completely. I'm second generation surfer from Oahu. Um, yeah. Trying to get away from people, trying to, you know, that, that, that older ethos of the sort of rebel surfer um, that like the professional surfing and contest surfing is for jocks and, and that whole nonsense. If I wanted to do that, I'd join a baseball team or a football team. Um, so the, the, ter- the term seems such an oxymoron to me and like such kind of embarrassing to say surf industry. I mean, and I totally agree with you now, yeah. especially what they've, what, they've, what they've done with it, right? To me, so again, not growing up anywhere there was good surf, like carving out my identity as a surfer in freezing cold Oregon waves, uh, sort of sucking off the energy of this industry. Like, think, okay, this is having, having it help, you know, I don't know, paint the picture of who I was, uh, realizing sort of what it was and then watching, watching the entire surf industry crash and burn in the most embarrassing, worst possible way ever, where I suppose good on the people who made money at the top, right? Uh, you're, you know, Bob, Bob McKnight's and these kind of genuinely core surfers uh, who, you know, uh, who knows if they accidentally started these brands or what, but started these brands and then, oops, they're now they're sold to, uh, you know, to, or going public, I suppose. And then after going public, falling into the hands of, you know, I don't know, whatever, like hedge funds and this, we're now, I mean, that's all the surf industry is now. The surf industry is one hedge fund and a couple failing assets. And the World Surf League is such an embarrassment of a catastrophe. Like, and that, for, again, for the, for the, the uninitiated, <laughs> um, the World Surfing League is the, the current iteration of uh, a global professional surfing circuit, right? Yeah. So it's like the NBA, ML, you know, Major League Baseball, NFL of surfing is called the WSL, the World Surf League, which now is run by, you know, Oprah's right hand at uh, Oprah Winfrey's right hand at the Oprah Winfrey Network. And it's just, a, it's an, it's such a mockery, such an absolute mockery. Uh, the whole thing, top to bottom, is a mockery of the things that I grew up thinking, well, this is awesome. And then realizing, no, you took something awesome and you made it like, I don't know, the, the concept of the term selling out, I think, even saying it as a, you know, mid 40s man of like, you know, as a kid growing up in the grunge era, you know, I just, I felt that, you know, you never sell out, you never sell out. I didn't, don't think I knew what that meant. Seeing what selling out looks like of taking something beautiful and, and commoditizing it, I suppose, and monetizing it and then selling it to the highest bidder, which that bidder continues to bid lower and lower and lower. And now you honestly, they're just a bunch of failing assets that nobody in their right mind will scoop up. Yeah, and, and, and especially, it's so especially ironic for surfing, which has this countercultural idea, you know, the, the soul rebel, the, you know, the, my dad was a hippie surfer from the, uh, from the 60s and, you know, took, us to, uh, took me to Hawaii um, as, a, as a baby, um, just trying to find, you know, get away from it all, turn his back on the man and so forth. And it, it always makes me think of, um, there's a lyric from the, the Clash song, um, White man and Hammersmith playing. Uh, they think it's funny turning rebellion into money. Yep. I mean, that, and that's it. And that is like 
Matt Warshaw wrote, I think so poignantly in the introduction to cocaine and surfing about if we're going to sell this thing, let's sell it on our terms. Uh, you know, people are coming to us. We don't have to dumb this thing down. This is a dream. And I don't know, have some kind of funnel to get people to, you know, that you have to, it's so beautiful and it was so worth preserving. And, you know, not that it's dead because I think something great has come out of it, but it's not the surf industry. It's now the individuals who are still somehow surfing and fighting the fight. Yeah. Except for all those, uh, those idiots with the Costco boards and getting in my way. <laughs> exactly. 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 But dang it. I mean, I keep thinking, you know, you're stinking from Oahu, you know, like, I just think now's the time for another black shorts to rise up. Right. I mean, I feel everything's a sort of, I don't know, we're on a pendulum and now's the time again for an Eddie Rothman to come and crack some heads. Yeah. And uh, folks read uh, his first book, Welcome to Paradise, Now Go to Hell, which is about the, uh, uh, the dark underbelly of the North Shore and uh, groups like the Black Shorts, who are a group of local surfers who defended their home breaks against uh, uh, primarily an Australian, but also Californian onslaught. And um, I've always said it's a fine line between community activism and vigilantism on the beach. It always um, is. <laughs> So well let's 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 get let's get into the actual history that's in this book. Um and you take us through a couple of key historical moments and phases in this uh relationship between cocaine and surfing. So where did it start? I mean, you you claim it started a couple thousand years ago in Peru. I mean, that's like I it's funny. I think it's been this theory uh Matt Warshaw again who is the surfing's one historian um discredits the Peruvian uh, origin and he and I have gone back and forth quite a quite a bit about it but to me it all like what does it actually mean to ride a wave right and Warshaw's claim is you have to be purposefully riding a wave only to ride that wave like that's what your that is your sole goal for doing it which is what the Polynesians were doing right like uh, that's what the Hawaiians and Tahitians um, they were specifically going out to surf the Peruvians would surf their uh, their fishing boats when they were coming back in, but and, and these aren't fishing boats. These aren't like big trawlers. What what, what do they look like? Describe. Yeah, them they, I mean, it, it looks more or less like kind of a glorified stand-up paddleboard, right? With a, it's a it's a bundle of reeds with kind of a flipped up nose where they would. Well, if they're, if they're suckers, straddle. they're not surfers. Yeah, they, I mean, on, so that's the that's the problem. That's that's. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, to interrupt, but but go on. So they, so for how how long ago is this? I mean, I mean this is this is like prehistory. I think the first one of these, and they're called little horses, caballitos. I think in mm -hmm. Spanish is what they call their boats. Um, and this like the first one they found. I I can't remember exactly, but what it was like 2000 BC or something. They found an, a depiction of one in a cave somewhere. And so this whole thing has been happening forever in Peru. And to me, adding intent. After the fact, how can we do that? Yeah, I mean, you're a historian. Like, I don't know that we could say, okay, how do you? How do I know? How does Warshaw know? How does anybody know that that's not? You know, they would go out or fishing, but their whole goal coming back in was to surf. Uh, and it looks from all the early depictions, it looks like they're having a hell of a fun time riding those waves back into shore. So, but maybe they were having a fun time because they had a mouthful of coca leaves. I, that's precisely the point. So, so speak lo to and that, behold, speak to that. Lo and behold, cocaine also, or coca, also was first ever, not discovered, but that's the first place it grew, was Peru. Uh, there's ancient, ancient, ancient um, 
I don't know, both like references and reports about how they use coca in Peru. And it was very specifically Peruvian. And then, you know, as the history goes, of course, so you have these two things, right? You have this genesis of at least a form of surfing and then a genesis of a form of cocaine. Clearly coca is not cocaine. Um, But you have these two things in this one place, Peru, which I don't think people wouldn't typically put as, I don't think dead center of surf uh, in their idea of what surf is, right? I mean, you think- I've met Felipe Tomar and he will tell you it is. Exactly. So you did Felipe. <laughs> and who claims to be the first man to ride a tidal wave. <laughs> Precisely. It's epic. I love, I love his claims so much. Uh, yeah, totally. So, but per- Peru does have this surf culture, right? Where I don't think people outside of Peru or outside of Felipe probably think about it, but it does. And the fact that surfing has these sort of historical representations that are outside of what we imagine is is fascinating to me okay so and and so your thesis is that there's this sort of primordial meeting and you talk about the um the way in the you know the thor hired all thesis and the 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 still not quite fully teased out by the academics link between um the the people of what's now south america and settling polynesia and totally there's this connection there and and Thor, I mean, you as a historian actually having to get a PhD in all this, like I think have to dispense with, I don't know, myth and romanticism at some point. Well, see, but, I, w- I was raised in a household where we called my dad Thor Heyerdahl. So, he, he was like the, uh, an incarnation of, the, of this guy. So, Which in Thor, I know there's problems with Thor, but Thor Heyerdahl, the idea of Thor and of Kontiki and all this as a kid to me oh, yeah. was, I mean... And not even the idea, like what he did, you know, whether the, whether the academic, you know, whether all the I's are dotted and T's crossed, uh, making that journey is an absolutely incredible. I mean, building a little crap boat and sailing it across the Pacific is amazing. And finding a little dot in the middle of the Pacific. Totally. And, and as you say in the book, I mean, the, so much of surf stories are BS. Like, like it really is essential to surf culture to be telling these stories that, yeah, they're a little, <laughs> they're a little shaky. Completely. Right? I mean, the suspect surf story is the, that's, is the that's a surf story. That is. That's the only yeah. one worth listening to. I mean, I suppose it shares, you know, that with fishing kind of like who wants to hear a real solid, you know, we have eyewitnesses for this, this, and this, and this. And to me, the, the Thor Heyerdahl story fits so well into a surf story, right? It's this epic tale that, yeah, maybe it's not all there, but, but it's mostly there. He actually did the adventure. Well, maybe surfing history shouldn't be archival-based and we shouldn't uh, prof- subject to professional scrutiny. Never? Never. It should only be, I mean, it should only be the story that is the funnest to tell and the sort of the grandest that should be the one that lives as fact but you you idolize uh matt warshaw who's this great uh historian of uh surfing and and he's trying to undo that completely but he and i go back and forth all the time where yeah. i think no 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 like but I, you know what's my no 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 without his work like i feel you need to have the scholarship in order to have the play where so easy for me to provide the play part if there was no scholarship then what am I even playing off of? I'm just bouncing from untethered, you know, idea to untethered story. Okay, well let's 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 bounce from untethered idea to another untethered idea. Perfect. Um, so 
there's this, you know, deep primordial connection uh, starting in Peru. And then um, both surfing and cocaine come to the United States at roughly the same time at the turn of the century, right? Exactly. From, from outside, southern influences, right? Exactly. So tell, tell us about that. I mean, more or less unheard or, you know, unseen or untested in, in America and literally at the same time. So surfing came, George Freeth, more or less, uh, from Hawaii, uh, where, so surfing, you know, in my thesis, Peru starts there, goes across to, you know, Thor Heyerdahl traces its roots from these Peruvians who went across the sea and surfing ends up in Tahiti, goes to Hawaii. So they're practicing surfing, you know, surfing is developing all this. Meanwhile, back in South America, coca, you know, is being used for more and more things and being discovered by Europeans. So both uh, forms of coca that have been processed and now, you know, something new. Now it's, now it's becoming cocaine. Exactly. It's on its way to becoming cocaine and surfing, which is, you know, in the stew was not what it looked like in Peru, but now both have been refined. Both have been cut and added new stuff, you know, chipped in and both now are becoming more highly addictive. Uh, and <laughs> at the, at the same exact time and look at that coincidence. And they're and it's arriving in the United States in precisely 1900, 1910. Exactly. Right around. You, who are some yeah. of the figures you talk about? You drop a little Mark Twain. Yes. So Mark, Mark Twain, both cokehead and surfing enthusiast. Oh, was he? Uh, he, uh, he Did talked he about in the book. I think he wrote about, I think he was going to buy a coca plantation. Oh, that's I think his, right. that his whole dream yeah, was, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Was so, and there's all these, of course, how easy, I don't know how you stop as a, I mean, I suppose the academia just kicks it out of you, but for me, anytime I can chase two <laughs> rabbit trails at once, however, like silly and not true one is, I'll keep forcing my way through the weeds to try to find the connection. Mark Twain is the perfect one, right? Where mm-hmm. there's both references to Mark Twain surfing. He got taken surfing by, Oh, I can't remember who it was. And Jack London too. I mean, there was, yeah. there was this, there was this moment where these classic American authors. And Jack were, London's better at it. Uh, precisely. And, and Jack London's description of it was phenomenal. I mean, he's getting sunburned and all this kind of stuff. Uh, so, but again, and then yeah, Twain's other love or not love, but was talking about being a coca plantation owner, but these sort of this swinging early 1900s America were, I don't know if it was true, but things just looking back, it seems like things were new then or, or new things were being discovered so rapidly that everything felt new. And these two things dovetailed together nicely, even though, you know, at the time surfers, I don't think had anything to do with cocaine, but they were just coming into America at the same time, Yeah, at the same time, which I suppose funnels up to, you know, the sixties. Um, so when, when does this modern relationship between cocaine and surfing start? I mean, you, you talk a bit about, um, uh, surfers exploring surf spots in Indonesia in the 1970s, particularly in Java, Gland, which I wish I had, if it were not for COVID, I would, I would have been there uh, a month or two ago. Um, and, uh, you talk about some of the connections between these, uh, these larger than life surf explorers and the, how they funded their, um, their, sorry, endless summer, right? Exactly. So that's mostly it, right? So you have these two developing things. I think you have cocaine, you have surfing, uh, as 
cocaine is developing, getting more purified, getting more valuable because it had no, not no value, but it was fairly cheap for a long time. I, I mean, I can't remember. I should have reread my book, <laughs> but uh, it, it only got outlawed in the States. Some, you know, not, it hasn't been like this class A scheduled drug for it's, you know, r- relatively recently was it, was it outlawed before then it was just, a, it was an ingredient. It was just, you know, it was a yeah, med- famously it was in Coca-Cola and exactly uh, I, in my academic work, I, I look at uh, some of the, the French doctors that fought the bubonic plague in Southeast Asia. And one of them, Alexander Yartsen, who was this great hero for conquering the plague in, in China. He also was the first to import coca to uh, Vietnam and had a coca plantation. And he had his own version of a cocaine beverage, which he was trying to push on everybody. That is totally awesome. So, yeah. I mean, so, but it, like, yeah, like this, this history and w- sort of what it became as it, as it became refined again, like surfing. So they, so now all of a sudden though, at some point, uh, I think in the fifties, cocaine gets outlawed and it, and now it's like actually potent. I mean, they've, now it's cocaine. Now it is what we more or less consider cocaine. Surfing also had come to the point where it just grabbed people, right? And so they're now throwing their lives away to go surf far away exotic places. What's easier at this point when you have people willing to, you know, sell all, not expecting to make any money. There's no surf industry at this point. There's no way to make money off surfing. So how do you make money off surfing? Very easily you start moving drugs around. You're already moving places. You're already taking these big boards places. How easy is it to cut open your fin and layer some cocaine in there or glass some cocaine into your board? So, so again, for the, for the uninitiated, for the non-surfers in the audience, I mean, the surfboards are fiberglass construction and you can tear open. I mean, we, we regularly bang our boards on rocks and on each other and have, have to fix the dings. And so everybody's always repairing their boards and re-glassing their boards with fiberglass and resin. And so they would, they would rip a hole open in the board, create a secret compartment, put half a kilo in there or something. Yep. There you are. And, and then, then glass it over. And then it's like, oh yeah, I just had to repair my board. It is the perfect, I mean, in, in fiberglass also more is essentially cocaine. I mean, right? Like you have this white, powderish thing when you start grinding it i mean just the the ease of being able to smuggle and so now you have the people who are already adventurous you have something that has value now that is very easy to transport it's not like gold or something heavy you know it's not guns or it's easy to get around there's you can play the markets right i mean jeff hackman one of the uh original founders of the brand quicksilver got the U.S. license for Quicksilver by realizing, okay, I can get cocaine cheap in America, heroin's cheap in Australia, cocaine's expensive in Australia, I will take cocaine from America to Australia and then bring heroin back. Uh, He's he's doing this in his surfboard. Yeah, in his surfboard. And along the way, I realized, oh, wait, there's this amazing surf trunk that I really want to buy the license to. And so, and there we have Quicksilver, or at least Quicksilver's coming to America and then you know, the ride that Quicksilver took. And so from- So, so Quicksilver becomes this gigantic multinational corporation and Hackman's original purchase of the, of the license, the American license is with cocaine profits, with cocaine. smuggling I mean, profits. It, was, it wasn't necessarily with the profits, but it was, it, that's what he was doing. It was seed money, yeah. Yeah, and he just got waylaid. And the, I mean, for so much of the surf industry, right? It was, I mean, there's- rumors for all the brands about how they, or all the big ones, how they started. And it's so tied up in this 
this early drug trade just because there was no industry. And so how are these people going to make money? They're not, you can't surf and bang nails all day. You can't surf and teach all day. You have to be, have a, a job that makes you enough money to travel that also doesn't take much time where drug smuggling is the easiest thing ever. And I mean, there's a phenomenal movie that's never seen the light of day called uh, Sea of Darkness, which tells the story of G-Land and tells the story of these brands and these people. Um, yeah, where, I mean, it, it was more or less as simple as that is you have commodities that are now expensive or, or valuable people who are adventurous and need, you know, are already traveling the oceans, like one plus one equals love story real easily. Yeah. I mean, there, there are already these counterculture characters living on the edge. Um, this is mid seventies. So it's in sort of that, uh, collective trauma that uh, American youth culture is going through after the American war in Vietnam, after the failure of the more uh, progressive aspects of the 1960s. And it's, it's into that phase of decadence and, um, and withdrawal. Right. So going for, for sure. Yeah. I mean, with surfers just, we're just being principally withdrawn. I mean, that's, that's what we do best is withdraw. I think that's all we ever want to do, right. Is get away is give up. Like no surfer has ever been a, a great champion of civil rights, I don't think. I mean, maybe Duke Kanemoku or there's probably some good Hawaiian figures. And now uh, there are- Mar Martin Potter. I mean, Martin Potter made a stand. The, 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 the Australians uh, took a really good stand against um, apartheid. A, a, a phenomenal stand, but one stand in you know a 20 year history. I mean, it's not a regular, not to say that surfers are bad people, but I think surfers are perpetually- just wanting to disappear, just wanting yeah. to go be by themselves on a wave. Uh, yeah. This, and like, I think with civil rights, just the ugliness of how that collapsed, uh, I think it was real easy and natural for surfers to think, hey, screw this, we're out of here. I mean, because they kept that going on G-Land way past its sell-by date. What do you mean? The camp what going to the smuggling I mean, or the? Yeah, like I think that when did uh, the GLAN camp finally got shut down by the Indonesian government for being a, basically a drug harbor? I think it was like 76 or 77. It was yeah. like, you know, yeah. it wasn't like 69, Summer of Love, and then all, you know, yeah. it, I mean, it was almost to the 1980s. Uh, and then the surfers burst out from there, and, you know, many of them kept going. Many of them kept like just up to their smuggling operations. Well, so take us to the 1980s, um, and this is the explosion of both cocaine use in the United States and of the surf clothing business. That, that It's in the 1980s that we actually have the surf industry, right? Precisely. So you, prof you profile the company Gotcha, uh, which I got to tell you was like so foundational in my life. I mean, I was, I was um, you know, I, was, I think I was 13 in 1980, and I remember um, – I couldn't, my mom wouldn't always buy me gotcha shorts. And so I would literally go into the stores and steal the stickers. And you, you mentioned that in the book, um, steal the hang tags, which were stickers. And it was such a, um, it raised my social capital so much to have the supply of gotcha stickers. But so tell us about um, gotcha as this company and it's, Party animal founder Michael Thompson, who recently passed away. Yeah, Michael Thompson just and you, you, away. you profile, um, uh, I think, in a, with a, a like a surprising level of depth and nuance, and I think really grace when you talk about him um, that I have not seen in other uh, aspects of him on uh, in surf journalism. But so, what, what's the nexus of 
gotcha and cocaine or surf industry and cocaine in the 1980s. So that, I mean, that was it, right? 80s comes, surf industry. So you have these sort of nascent brands who are making trunks and t-shirts and all that. And then 1980 hits and it just explodes. Like what the, why it did, who knows? But, you know, the day glow kind of thing, whatever it was about the 1980s, it just surfing just went through the roof. And gotcha, you know, number one, I mean, they were like, went from, I don't know, a few hundred thousand dollars in sales to, you know, millions of dollars overnight, millions of dollars. Uh, and found, Gotcha was founded by a South African named Michael Thompson, who, you know, was sort of a, a I don't know, blue collar surfer, was never that great, would charge, would, you know, go out and give her hell, but was never going to be a star, but just had this fashion idea. I mean, and Gotcha, you know, was, was, doing things that high fashion wasn't doing at the time. I mean, Michael had this idea of what he wanted all of this to be. And it was just absolutely decadent. It was, you know, cocaine smothered parties and strippers, you know, on the catwalk and whatever he thought, whatever his brainchild was. But it was this, it was just this unhinged vision of surf. And to me, that's what surf was, right? This is, this is easy to look back and say, oh, that was the high watermark. But I mean, that was the high watermark. Like it was where they were making money, but they were also, their vision was not, his vision was not compromised. And so, yeah, so this, but as things go, I suppose this industry just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then these companies start to go public and then it all breaks. But back to Thompson, I mean, what a character, what a singular legendary character. Yeah. And your, your I, I don't know why his life is amazing. And part, part of my frustration with the surf industry today is that like sort of turning a blind eye or, or not turning a blind eye is being embarrassed about what he represented because Michael Thompson went on and got busted, I think twice more for uh, possession, um, you know, and, and his story just became sort of this uh, cautionary tale of don't get involved. I mean, Thompson never got off, off it, I don't think. Uh, when I interviewed her from the book, off, I wrote about it off, off cocaine off specifically. Yeah. Like yeah. it was not just drugs for him, which is, it was cocaine. He loved cocaine. Uh, you know, the last time I interviewed him, you could just hear just the wind blowing through his, his septum. Like, and he had, but I don't know my, in writing it and he was such a character. And why do we have to make these guys cautionary tales? Like for sure. I don't want to, I don't want to do, drugs like michael thompson did drugs but i suppose at some level i love that michael thompson did drugs like michael thompson did drugs like he he as the this i don't know this he was just such a stinking rock star for me and he still is and i don't know why we have to you know taint him because he did bad stuff yeah and then you contrast that with this change in the surf industry, but also cocaine uh, in the 1990s. And in particular, you you kind of point the finger at uh, Kelly Slater, this uh, famous like global, famous surf star who becomes this global figure and is still, I mean, I don't know, possibly the most famous surfer on earth. For uh, sure. I think probably the only, outside of Laird Hamilton, the only surfer who even approaches household name. Yeah, yeah. So what, what, what does Kelly Slater represent for surfing and cocaine in the 1990s? So I think as, so as surfing 
got, and as the surf industry got bigger, then, you know, they got CEOs and whatever that were not necessarily part of the core. And when surfers talk about the core, of course, you know, uh, it's just something that always meant something. Like I never wanted to be a outsider. You always, you know, you don't, you didn't want to be a Barney or a cook. You wanted to be in this little nut inside you know, just the core meant everything. It's about credibility. Uh, it's about being a part of the community. It's, I mean, it, it surfers are extremely hostile to outsiders of all types. Exactly. Geographic, cultural, um, rude, bastard. very tribal culture, but uh, totally. But, but as the, so as the, you know, brands continue to grow though and make money, then outside people came in to run them and, Kelly Slater sort of dovetailed, right? Not that Kelly Slater is outsider. Kelly Slater is as core as core could be, I suppose, at some level, but also was a product of this new explosion for what the surf industry was, where he was handsome. He was, you know, relatively or totally clean cut, represented a athletic, clean, talented lifestyle, was not a derelict in any way, shape or form. And so I think at this point with Kelly specifically, uh, surfing or the surf industry took a hard turn away from being a bunch of Daryls and became this respectable, you know, I want Kelly Slater to be my son and or marry my daughter. Um, well, but I mean, in what you're talking about in the 1980s, I mean, it's, it's, it's the, the night. So, I mean, surf, surfing has its origins. It's this countercultural mo- movement in the, with my dad in the late fifties and in the sixties that changes a bit in the seventies, even in the eighties, as you know, the surf industry explodes and all that, it's still the gotcha thing is still very counterculture. It's bad boy. It's naughty. Right. Sure. But then in the 1990s, that's when it really becomes establishment. And Kelly Slater is like the most establishment figure you could imagine. I mean, he eats healthy. I mean, he's for whatever reason that, notion of being in the counterculture being anti-establishment is associated with heavy partying right yes and he does not do that no no and never did and even you know when he was you know a young when he should have or when he theoretically you'd think he would have didn't i mean he was always you know set apart a bit and doing his thing and being healthy and i think pushing not probably purposefully, but just the way he lived, just this idea of surfing as a thing you want your kids to do. And so now all of a sudden you have this explosion of, you know, again, non-core people coming in, of people looking at Kelly and thinking, ooh, yeah, like let's teach our kids to surf and so they can be like Kelly and let's, let's do surfing as sport and surfing as healthy lifestyle. Oh, I really don't like it. But that's yeah. what it became in the 90s. <laughs> And Mickey Dora warned us about this. I mean, the one of the great counterculture icons of the 1960s, Malibu. Um, you know, a, a very complicated individual who has got very interesting sort of last couple acts of his life. Uh, um, I don't think he ever got involved in drug smuggling, but he was smuggling diamonds at one point. I mean, uh, for sure. Like he was <laughs> up to all kinds of no good. Um, I mean, he, checks and all of it. Mickey Dora the cat is just so the antithesis of uh, Kelly Slater. And I think, you know, the occurrence sort of apotheosis of the Kelly Slater strain is the uh, inclusion of surfing in the Olympics, which um, completely clearly God is against. And that's why the Olympics were canceled. I mean, that is, a <laughs> it's such a, it is such a travesty. And so that's, I suppose, coming full circle. Like there was one blip in Kelly Slater's, you know, run where Andy Irons, surfer from Kauai came up and challenged Andy uh, or challenged Kelly. And, and, and just, just for, again, for the non-initiated. So yep. 
in the 1990s, Kelly Slater wins the world championship how many times? Six? I think it was seven before. Seven times? I think it was and, seven before to, to the challenge. Yeah, then he retires. Yeah. Like he, he, he's got nobody to beat. And then the anti-Kelly, Andy Irons, who has got so much charisma, such an incredible surfer, is, as you talk about, is a darn good-looking guy, right? I mean, he's, yep. just, he's just like, who, who, like, he's just this alpha male. And he, you talk about a bad boy. Um, he, he was bad. He's wrestling with some demons. Um, yep. And his getting back to the cocaine. His cocaine use was fairly open secret amongst the surfing community. Completely. I'll say community, not industry, right there. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, industry too. I mean, we could say yeah, industry. It was yeah. all industry. Like well, I was, I was, I was going to include myself in that. So. <laughs> but, uh, um, but um, the uh, so Kelly comes out of retirement to go up against Andy Irons, right? Exactly. And loses and loses again and loses again. So Andy beats him three times, which is unheard of, you know, for the, uh, I mean, Kelly had this aura of, you know, he, he could never be beat. Then Kelly, of course, figures it out and goes and wins. I don't know. Now he has 11. So whatever seven minus 11 is won that many more titles while Andy goes and dies in Dallas, Texas of drug overdose. Yeah. That, I mean, and that's sort of the emotional peak of the book and um and it was a it was a gut-wrenching moment for anybody involved in the larger surfing community and i don't know when it won in the industry but um um here is this like incredibly talented surfer uh, a complex individual um but someone who's just undeniably captured like the spirit of surfing and of aloha and in its various ways aloha can be understood um not necessarily the waikiki postcard uh definition um, how how did he die? He died. I mean, it was it was a, they claim heart attack, but as as I write, which you know, hell, I think he was thirty three, right, when yeah. he died. Which healthy thirty three year old and, and a world class athlete. Yeah, which which you know who has a heart attack? Where no, it was years of and of course secondary cause was acute whatever toxicity from and he had cocaine in the system he had you know whatever he had in the system uh, but andy everybody knew andy was just a ripper uh, i mean he partied nonstop, and and andy was sort of the last uh i mean i feel that surfing's rebellion or or this era of surfing rebellion died with andy and now you know brings us to today i suppose of this failing industry that's silly but there's it's just lot it is completely lost its way and i suppose it's so finished that uh someone else could rise from the ashes now and make surfing rebellious again mm-hmm. yeah um so and, and i know you need to get going in a, in a few minutes um um but i just want to ask you so at you in the book you go through a lot of introspection if not flat out self-flagellation about your role as a surf journalist and what surfing journalism could be and should be. And at the end of this hero's journey, you seem to sort of made peace with your profession and you, you claim um, that this profession you claim to despise so much and offer a new path forward. So what, what's you sort of end on this optimistic note and have this, this moment of epiphany of what surf journalism could be. I think I'm still kind of there, oddly, uh, in terms of, I, I always thought there was better out there and more out there. I thought surfing, I loved it. I loved it so much. But once I started writing, I thought, okay, I'm going to, you know, go write the next great book, or I'm going to go into, you know, write politics to write, you know, 
I don't know, to be a war journalist, to write anything that is meaningful. Uh, and sort of realizing that none of it's, I mean, maybe it's all as meaningful as it is not, right? Like there's no, you're in something and it just, feed, no matter what you're in, I think it feels meaningless to you. And uh, funny, the whole hero's journey thing, I loathe the hero's journey. Do you like the hero's journey? <laughs> no, no, it's, it's totally trite. Um, I, I mean, I, I liked it as Star Wars when I was 10. Precisely. Um, <laughs> but the fact that that's still the only narrative that's out there for how to tell a story like yeah I just, yeah i wrote a or my book that just came out reports from hell about the middle east uh had some guys try to option it for film and had to eventually they had to you know oh we can't figure out the story because they just couldn't figure out the hero's journey angle where why does everything have to be the hero's journey hero's journey is <laughs> is just goofy as hell but it's it's easy it's marketable it's it's um you know, it's it's the it's the dumb guy's version of intellectualism. You know, it's 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 Jordan Peterson. Yeah. But don't you think? Don't you think that the public, the film watching or reading, I guess, public is they they're tired of it. I mean, it's been since Star Wars. This has been crammed down. That's it. That's the narrative you tell. It's a hero's well, journey. You're you're talking about a culture right now where art is produced by algorithm. I mean, just look at how Netflix writes things. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy yeah um but you but you, and in the into the book you engage with uh environmentalism and maybe this is a path forward i d- i mean shoot i wish it was my path forward i really do think i wish wish i'm such a damn cynic i i suppose <laughs> which yeah. which is what makes the book so damn readable <laughs> i mean so it's just so like for me to really try to because i do believe of course you know deeply that we shouldn't be screwing the environment the way the way we are and that we could do something to fix this and surfers more than anyone could do something and funny i was at the end of that book it was when or as i was finishing writing it the whole san onofre power plant thing uh so in southern california there's there's a power plant uh, right next to, you know, well, one of the greatest. It's a nuclear power plant. A it's nuclear power plant. plant. It's Sorry. a nuclear yeah. power plant and a, on the coast, on the beach, on, on a fault sand. line in, on, a, in, a, in a very popular surfing area. Like, completely. And they, they are burying the nuclear waste in the sand. And so I had Ian Cairns, who's uh, one of, uh, you know, a famous Australian surfer, call me up and said, come on, help us out here. So I went to the meetings and I listened and I thought, okay, this is, I could totally, this is something. I could drive this. And realizing the intractable nature of this kind of, there's no solution, yeah, right? Yeah. There is no solution. I mean, until they make a you know, Yucca Mountain or whatever and a train to take it there, that stuff is going to be there. And, th- and so getting not depressed, but thinking, okay, maybe my, what I can, what I can do is not this. Maybe I can just make fun. Well, damn, damn it, Chad Smith, you ended that book on an optimistic note. And like in the hero's journey, you found redemption. Now, now you're telling us, you're showing us behind the curtain that, uh, uh, <laughs> that you're, you're not there yet. I'm, I mean, I'm not either that or I really have realized that provocation has value. Uh, and, and I don't know that I'm there yet either. I don't know that I'm just a broken, rotten soul who <laughs> is, is <laughs> just wrecked it, just pissed away a life and is just ugly and damaged uh but i think provoking at least for surfing there's still something to being able to provoke this to be better than it is yeah because so so much i mean i don't don't read 
I haven't, even as a kid, I never read the articles in Surfer or Surfing. I looked at the pictures. I mean, the surf journalism is just fluff. It's just a pat on the back. It is just boosterism. Whereas your, your, um, your website, Beach Grit, I, I think it's like comparable. It's like the surfing industry's version of Charlie Hebdo. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is. It is. They are provocateur. They are. They are the bad boys. They're naughty. Um, I know you got to get going, but um, can you suggest two books to our listeners um, related to these subjects? I mean, what what are two books um, that uh, we should read? Okay, uh, a surf book. I think. I mean, I think that honestly, it sounds dull, but I think the history of surfing by Matt Warshaw mm-hmm. is one of the most fantastic reads. Also, like the way Matt writes the history of surfing it's just endlessly readable uh it's just very fun and he does such a great job of of a thorough job of telling the actual history so i'd say history of surfing on the surf side and the cocaine side i'm just gonna go straight up with uh fear and loathing las vegas i mean there's no like the cocaine histories are fine there's one called cocaine which is good um in terms of kind of a thorough take on cocaine or i suppose uh what's the i can't remember the name of it. what's the new one that's all about the cia uh putting it into the into the gangs of south central oh i don't know but there's been a fair amount of work on that but if you could yeah. go to Ernest thompson i mean wh- why not curse alono i mean he, oh. he he goes to the north shore that's true, but this is this is an earlier avatar of what you're doing i mean and ralph steadman's uh drawings of the pro surfing contest on the north shore in the 70s are like I mean, there are these Nazi thugs with surfboards goose-stepping down the beach. I mean, it- I, I've got to read. I've got to read Chris Alano again, to be honest. Oh. Like, I love that Hunter went to Hawaii. And I remember being so like, oh, yeah. Uh, but then I remember not, I mean, my favorite Thompson, if we're going to get into Thompson, is the Kentucky Der- Derby is Decadent and Depraved. Yeah, yeah. Have, have you read that one? No. It's, no, that, no, I mean, that is the yeah. greatest work he's ever, okay. it's a short story. Well, read, I think I wasn't as impressed with Lono as I was with Kentucky Derby. And so, yeah, but read, I got to go read, back to read, it. Reread Chris Lono and, and it's emotionally touching too. Yeah. There's, there's, there's the loss in there. I'm in. Um, and uh, yeah. Um, have you, have you read um, Peter Maguire's tie stick? I haven't yet. Is it, yeah. is it phenomenal? It's quite good. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and Peter's just a force of nature. I'm going to got him set up for a, for a podcast coming up. Oh, awesome. Um, and then a uh, podcast I did previously, Scott Laterman's book, uh, Empire of Waves. Okay. Which is a uh, history of politics and surfing. Oh, phenomenal. And it is, it is fabulous. And okay. it does, it talks about a number of things you talk about focusing more on the political context of Indonesia and, and so forth. Oh, that sounds. But, so hey, what are you working, what are you working on now? So I'm writing a, uh, I got another one. Dang it. I can't stop writing books. Um, it's called. It is Plus- your job. It is my job. <laughs> it's called Blessed Are the Bank Robbers. Uh, and my family is, on my mom's side, is like sort of legendarily Christian in terms of, yeah, all mega pastors or mega, uh, you know, big kind of known missionaries, um, her brothers. And then my cousin, though, cousin Danny, went and ran, ran off, is approaching the biggest string of bank robberies in U.S. history. Uh, so it is, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's in jail now, but he's out soon and he's been in jail for it before. So that's, that's, that's another clash song, you know, not, not my daddy was a bank robber. My cousin was a bank robber. Ah, it's so, and just the, the idea of bank robbing and what bank robbing means when, when old cousin Dan was on the lam, uh, he reached out to me. And so we had like, I was going to go meet him on the lam before he got 
recall. But it's just this idea of faith and being a, and fugitives and bank robbing. Wow. Okay. That sounds great. I look forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll let you go so you can get to work on that. But, um, but thank you so much for, for talking to us. Thank you so much for having me. And anytime, please have me on again. This has been a conversation with journalist Chaz Smith about his 2018 book, Cocaine Plus Surfing, A Sordid History of Surfing's Greatest Love Affair. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode in New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.